Welcome to the Brown Girls Do podcast brought to you by Lemon Drop Media. This is episode three. Three is the magic number. Three is the magic number. (laughs) My name is Amber Cabral. And I'm Takia Wallace. And we are back this week with probably one of our favorite interviews so far. Just in terms of like interesting learning about yourself content. And it is so important to learn yourself. I'm still learning myself. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so what people don't know is we we jumped into this podcast kind of, I was going to say feet first, but really probably head first or like maybe even like hip first. You know, when you fall down the <laughs> stairs and you like land and kind of tumble down the steps. We jumped into this podcast that way. So we are often in some very interesting recording situations. <laughs> um, there are often blankets thrown over heads, uh, children involved. Yeah, let, let's, just, let's just get into that right now. So just to kind of set the scene for you, as I sit in my very small office, there is a um, fleece blanket over my head as we record this podcast. And probably within the next 40, 45 seconds or so, you will hear a uh, what sounds like a cat. It may be my three-year-old son. <laughs> <laughs> Because this is real life. We we make do. We we do, right? We take the time that we have to get the things done that we would like to get done and um we just make it happen. So That's sometimes that means do. you're sitting on the floor of a hotel room that you've checked out of <laughs> <laughs> trying to get time to record. Um and other times that means that you you know, you you try to get a word in when no one's talking around you and then you hit mute real fast. <laughs> All That's of which, me. yeah, all of which make for really, really interesting editing situations. And Taki and I both live really ridiculously busy lives, just trying to be in service to others and be in service to what we feel like our callings are in life. And so she recently went to a conference this week where, you know, I'll let you talk about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I uh, went to the Brioxi Conference, uh, the Brioxi Life Summit in Los Angeles, California at the California Endowment this weekend. And it was amazing. Just a room of social change artists that of all sizes, um, or I said all sizes, all, all ages that have come together to basically try and figure out together collectively how we can work together to go back and better our own communities and work towards our own causes. And it was so funny because often when I'm in spaces and people, the, the, the number one question I get is, well, what do you do? And it's a really hard thing to explain because I don't just do one thing. It's not like I can just say I'm an attorney or I'm a doctor. Um, I'm a social change artist. And that comes and it looks a lot of different ways depending on the day. And um, 
and and just kind of how I'm feeling that day. Sometimes sometimes I might use that title. Sometimes I may just say I'm a mom just because it's just easier and people can wrap their heads around that. Yeah. But um, there's so many things that we do. And it was really cool being in a room and in a space with so many other people who are uh, dealing with the same things that I'm dealing with, even if it's not, we, we don't have the same uh, audiences. We're not dealing with necessarily the same populations of people, but we have the same sort of um, system set up and we have the same sort of roadblock set up where you're trying to figure out the balance of um trying to work for this cause that you believe in, but also having a family and having a family and working on the cause, but then also wanting to do these things that sound really interesting and fun. And these opportunities that may only come along like once in a lifetime. Hello. podcast. Right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and so it was just really cool to be able to be in a space where you're not complaining, but you're just kind of, you, you are having a conversation with other people who can really relate to you, which is very rare, very rare. But I do think there's this theme of just figuring out yourself and trying to figure out who you are and what you are. I think one of the things we do is we we know I care about this. I care about brown girls. I care about, um, you know, just all the things you have your hands in. You've got progressive. You've also got um, things going on as far as in your personal life with, you know, Daddy Max Chicken. So, you know, they're just um, diversity consulting. I mean, like there's clients all <laughs> over the country. So I'm on planes every other week. But there, there's a lot going on, but like, it's all in the name of trying to figure out who you are and like where you're supposed to be going and how you're supposed to contribute to life, which I think is why this podcast is so important. It helps people see that, you know, you, you know, it's a, it's a wandering road. It's not a straight and narrow path. And, you know, you're going to encounter some different and interesting things and may find that that is your thing and, you know, decide to kind of embark on that. And today's guest, I think, talks a little bit about finding yourself, but from a historical perspective, just trying to think, you know, get some context, like, where did I come from? How did I get here? What do I do? Absolutely. So this, uh, this particular guest is important to me in my personal life because she has helped me find out a little bit about myself. It's not a little bit, it's it's a whole lot. (laughs) She's helped me find out a whole lot about myself, but we'll get into that later on in the podcast. So we're going to go ahead and get started and have our third Brown Girls Do podcast kick off with our guest, and her name is... My name is Nika Smith, and I am a resident troublemaker, but if you need a title for what I do, that would be professional genealogist and photographer. Okay, so I deliberately chose you, Nika, because I knew that I wanted women who had or who worked in fields that were not traditional, if that makes sense. And your field in particular is one that you don't see very many brown people in general working in and definitely not someone as young as yourself. So tell us about genealogy and how you got started. Well, the thing that's so funny to me is that a lot of folks, usually when they think of genealogy, they think of 
you know, gray-haired people who sit in archives, libraries, turning pages. Genealogies become a little bit more sexy in more recent years because of television. You've got shows like Finding Your Roots, Who Do You Think You Are, Relative Race. I keep going on and on and on. Reality TV has kind of, you know, made genealogy, you know, have a little leg out, so to speak, when it comes to uh, perception about it. But um, in recent years, in, in particular, because of the proliferation of technology and the fact that, you know, genealogy is mostly web-based now, there's been a, a huge young audience who has been drawn to it and who has interest in it. And so for me, being somebody who's under 40, who's interested in genealogy, it's I'm now not the outlier so much anymore. When I first started doing research about 18 years ago, you know, when I really, really got into it, I was definitely the outlier. I was definitely always the youngest person in the room. But now it's been so exciting to see so many young people. And one of the things that I love is when I'm at conferences and I'm out and about in the community is seeing other folks that are my age who are interested in it and they we have sort of like this you know we're sort of kindred spirits with each other you know being in this environment where typically is retirees or you know folks who you know who have grandchildren who get the the itch to start doing their research in my you know, scenario in terms of how I got interested is really sort of been a lifelong thing for me. When I was six years old, my family um, had a family reunion, believe it or not, where I live right now in Memphis. And um, a family tree was put together by my mother's first cousin. And this thing was huge. I still have it. And he began the tree because he wanted to answer a question that his daughter had about where her family came from. And so as a six-year-old child, you know, one of the first things I learned to read was my family tree. And I would roll it out on our dining room table and I would go through all the people who were on it. And I would ask my mother where all the children were who were born the same year that I was. (laughs) I wanted to know where they were. And at the time, I didn't quite understand why my family lived all over the place. At this you know, particular date and time now, we live in 22 states and four countries. And I couldn't understand how we all came from these you know, two people, but we all lived in all these different places. And of course, later through the process, I figured that out. And so um, as time went on, you know, as we kept having reunions, we've had them my entire life. Um, we've had them since 1972, every two years. You know, we would come back together every year and I would think, you know, this is awesome, but there should be a way for us to stay in contact when we're not having reunions. So I got this crazy idea to start a website. And I figured, you know, that would be a way for us to share information, do all sorts of things when when we're not getting together for reunions. And so and so uh, throughout time, you know, um, I would go, you know, gather names at reunions, and but I wasn't really doing any hardcore research. And then one of my coworkers at my day job told me about online research. And after that happened, after I saw my grandmother's name in a record, it was over. Like, the only thing I can compare it to is when people like are on drugs, and they need to like, re get that. They're basically trying to get the high that they got the first time. That's basically how it was for me. It's like this need and this insatiable want to try to unearth more and more information as time goes on. And so when I started, you know, using that tree that that the cousin had, and then another cousin had put together an expanded branch of the family, we started with about 300 people and now we're well over 3,500 living in four countries in 22 different states. And, you know, our family is, has an amazing story. Um, You know, we span the gamut from, 
you know, the, the chair of the Congressional Black Caucus, um, you know, who me and him have the same great-great-grandmother who was a slave woman who was a midwife and delivered babies. And I have my grandmother's birth certificate where that same woman delivered her as a child, you know, into the world. And, you know, we have that. We've got freedom riders. We've got people who testified in front of the Civil Rights Commission. And just recently, I discovered that my, my ancestors were owned by the nephew of President Andrew Jackson. So it's my journey. Oh my God. Wow. <laughs> it's been it's been quite an experience and in the process of learning, you know, how to do research and researching my own family, I developed the skills to be able to do it professionally for other people. So that is how I got here in a nutshell. Okay, Takia, are you talking? I don't hear. Okay, you remember when you told me to turn to mute my headset? Mm-hmm. I muted my headset and I muted the system. So you just missed the whole little chunk. That's okay. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. our regularly yeah. scheduled program. I mean, I'm telling yeah. you, by podcast 25, we're going to have this down, okay? I'm saying. You. If you guys ever want me to come on, it's like, uh, it's like if one of you guys can't do it, I will do it. It'll be me. So it'll be you sitting in for me. Thank you. Okay. No, it might be you sitting in for us. <laughs> Why are you playing? You're right, actually. Um, That's actually not a bad idea. I want you, actually, I want you to expound on the Andrew uh, Jackson story. The thing about the the connection to Andrew Jackson, it took me 18 years to find that information. 18 years? Wait, wait, wait. Were you looking for it? Absolutely. Absolutely. So the thing, you know, especially with doing people of color genealogy research, there's already sort of a learning curve in that, you know, in particular, if I could speak specifically to the United States and you're talking about people of color, in particular African-Americans, if you're dealing with research in the South, typically records, when they're kept by the municipality or the county, city, state, whatever it is, they were segregated. So in some ways, that makes it easier for us to find our ancestors because they would be in the colored records. But the problem with that is that when you get back to a certain time period in this in this instance, I'm speaking with regard to the slavery era, you are not looking for folks who are documented as people. You have to remember the 13th Amendment, you know, that abolished slavery. Um, People typically like to say it's the Emancipation Proclamation. No, it's the 13th Amendment. Shout out to Ava for the documentary so people recognize that. Um, And when that 13th Amendment happened, that meant that, you know, we were, slavery was abolished, but it wasn't until the 14th Amendment that we actually gained citizenship. When you go back in history, you look at the Dred Scott case, that established that slaves were not considered people. And in documents, that meant that, you know, if you decided to get married, you know, now you just go down to the courthouse, you, you know, pay the fee, you know, you're married. If you were a slave, that was not happening. Unless your, you know, slaveholder had some sort of a book at their plantation, if they kept records of marriages, there was no way you had literally no piece of paper that said that you were married because they didn't consider you a person, you were property. And with that being said, despite the fact that my family had this long history, we knew our ancestry going back to my great, great, great grandfather. We had this unique last name, Atlas, A-T-L-A-S. The number one question I always get from my family is where did the last name came from? To this day, I still don't know. But you know, lore throughout time is as, as African-Americans or as people of color, especially black people, has said that you know, whatever your last name is, was the last name of the slaveholder. In my family's case, that is not true. In fact, at this point, I believe that my family chose the name Atlas because pretty much anyone that lives in the United States that has that last name is either black and related to me or they're of Jewish descent or Jewish culture. And so um, for years, I twiddled my fingers 
you know, spun my brain a million times trying to find a slaveholder with the last name Atlas. And that's not who I found. Um, it, it actually can be tied back to bacon. Sounds so random, but it's true. Like the food bacon? The food like the bacon. candy of meats bacon? Yes, like, yes, the candy of meats. See, I, you know what? I love you, Amber, because you, you, me and you and bacon, we're, mm, on, we're together. Mm, we're on one yes, accord. Girl, bacon. I've eaten a whole <laughs> pack of bacon at, uh, at Takiya's house. That's another story as well, but. Mm-hmm. It's true. Yeah. It's a whole thing of bacon yesterday. <laughs> so bacon, bacon is what really led me to this this discovery. Um, there's a set of records. A lot of folks don't know that there was a government entity called the Freedmen's Bureau that was established after the Civil War. And basically what it did was it was trying to restabilize the country, in particular, destitute whites. Notice I said that first. And people who had just been freed you know, who were former slaves. You know, the country was ravaged, industry was was ravaged, people didn't have a lot of resources. And so what the Freedmen's Bureau would do was it would facilitate contracts between former slaves and their former slaveholders. It would provide rations, all sorts of stuff. It's got a great history. I don't know why anybody hasn't made a movie about that. But regardless, um, I was going through these records and I had um <clears throat> I had been through them before, but I noticed that one of our ancestors was in them and, and they were in them in 1864. The 13th Amendment did not happen until 1865. So it was a whole almost year before slavery was over. And I saw where this ancestor had gotten a, a set of rations, 90 pounds of bacon, some tobacco and a linen coat. And I was wondering, what did one man, what was one man doing with this much bacon? It made no sense. pounds of bacon. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. I'm like, that's a lot of bacon. I mean, and I love bacon, but that's a lot of bacon. (laughs) That's a lot of bacon. So at this point, I've surmised that our family may have been distrustful of the entity. Because you have to think about it. Here the the federal government comes down. They establish this field office for the Freedmen's Beer. These are folks you don't know that are not in your community. And they're giving out stuff. And you know how skeptical we are sometimes as people of color the rest of the family was like no i'm not going down there i don't care what they got and john atlas was like look if they're giving out free stuff i'm gonna go and the rest of the family said okay well then pick us something and up and he was, was like, like all right they got you back bacon. Bacon. <laughs> <laughs> exactly that's really what i think happened so it totally fits the pathology of my family so um so he goes to get this bacon and then like later he goes and picks up something else this was within a few days but the two notations had different places that he lived one said where my family's from lake providence louisiana a little one-horse town in northeast louisiana and then the second one said that he lived at short's place i'm like who's short so i go to do research and i find out there's a lawyer in the area named hugh short and i have been researching this place for nearly 20 years and i'm like i've never heard of this guy before so i start looking into him and when you research people of color and you research slaveholders you you want the slaveholder, the best case scenario is for the slaveholder to have passed away before the war. Because if he did, he or she did, there had to be an inventory taken of their estate. And that would include all their property, which in this case was people. And that person, Hugh Short, did die. He died uh, about a year or two before the war ended. So that was like, yes, cha-ching, jackpot. So I've pulled his will up and it is to this day, I've read through thousands of wills. This is the strangest will I've ever seen, but it makes sense because it's my family. He mentions at the beginning of the will that he suffered from a hemorrhage that morning. And that because he had, he wanted to make sure that just in case he died, that he left a will. And he also wanted it to be known that this hemorrhage was not caused by any of his slaves, by anything that they did to him. 
Wow. Now, usually when you have, yeah, when you have a will from a slaveholder, they're just like, look, I died. Yes, Jesus. I love you. Commit my body. Okay. My wife's going to get Millie and her daughter and her increase. My son's going to get, they go all there. They don't even think about the welfare so much of the slaves after they died. And he made but a I, point to make sure it was, do not accuse anyone, you know, any of yeah. my slaves. That is very interesting. Yes. So he made this statement and I was just like, okay, th- there's a whole blog post about this will. And I just kept reading through and he talked about, you know, his son. He wants to make sure that he can pay for him to go to college. He can have his law library. And then he says, if my, if my debts exceed what I have on hand, please sell the following slaves, King and his wife, Rachel and children. It took me an hour before I could even get to the next page. Because it took me 18 years just to find those names. And my story is not unique. Most, I would say the lion's share of African Americans have this much trouble trying to trace their ancestors as slaves because one, they changed names, they changed locations, you know, the oral history wasn't passed down. So, so my situation is not unique. So after I got myself together, because I really honestly, me and another cousin that do this research, we, we surmised that our family came from a spaceship and landed where they <laughs> were at <laughs> and so we were like that's gonna be the story that we're gonna go with is that we came on a spaceship and that we landed in like providence and then we're all here but now we actually had a name we knew who the slave owner was our ancestors were there and then when i pulled the inventory up i saw my great-great-grandfather so king and rachel are my third great-grandparents and king jr is my great-great-grandfather his name was king atlas whenever anybody hears that name they're like wow what kind of what yeah. kind of stuff do you guys do? Yeah, that and it's so indicative of my family. But um, there was King and Rachel and their children, all of them listed out by name. And when I totaled the values, my family was worth over a hundred thousand dollars in today's money. Just them, just the two of them. Just it was them and their sons. Their four sons. Okay, their four children. Okay, and their four children. But even still, um, that's relative, still a lot. Yeah, it's still yeah. a lot of money. Um, you know, back then, I mean, to have a slave, if a slave was worth over seven hundred dollars, that was a very valuable slave. Typically, they had skilled trades, like they were, you know, a blacksmith or a carpenter or a midwife. They had to be some sort of skilled labor that the you know the slaveholder could use to their advantage. Maybe a musician. I mean, it goes expands the gamut but typically male slaves they sort of like their value peaked at about like age 40 women it was a little bit younger once they left their childbearing age um even women who were considered breeders had high values where they would be bred because they you know they they had children who were strong and who could do a lot and so um from that point forward you then have to keep going backwards to previous owners so then it became my job to try to find out how this hugh short you know, got my family. And it turns out his wife was the great niece of Andrew Jackson. And they, he purchased interest in my ancestors from other family members who were also connected to Andrew Jackson. And when I searched through his papers at the Library of Congress, they were, this family was mentioned nearly 80 times. Um, and so that's where I'm at is it, there's a, a story of, of a brother who died and his widow got remarried and the, his, you know, the, the, the brother-in-law was mad because she remarried and the property went to him and then he absconded to Arkansas and my family was there with him and then the man dropped dead it took him six months to try to find a next of kin and my family stayed there they didn't run away 
Why? I don't. I don't understand. I don't understand. I don't because because we're thinking in today's times, right? We're mm-hmm. like, oh. I would have left. You know what I mean? I would have bounced. Like, but where would they have gone? Well, yes. And here's the other piece. King and Rachel were in their 40s, right? They've got, you know, five kids. You know, so just imagine if you had your two children, Takia, and you had you had another three. And they're all under age 10. You yeah. know, think about Underground, right? I love Underground, right? And Ro- Rosalie, and just imagine if she had like five of her brother that she had to try to rescue, you know, from from getting captured. And so, what I think happened was the the you know the slave owner died. His family they they couldn't find them. I mean, they literally put a notice in the newspaper with this man's physical description because they couldn't find his next of kin because he had disassociated himself with his family, and his his uh his sister took what she had and her son took what he had and her son-in-law took what they had and they bought my family and they made sure that we were not separated from each other. That's awesome. So it's, yeah. So that's, that's how we have a tie back to them. So that's where I'm at right now with research, but it's a lot. Wow. You and I have a, a, um, a, a personal connection to what you do. You are the person who actually convinced me to start looking into my own background, right? Mm-hmm. And I've never talked about this in any public format. So this is going to be very interesting. <laughs> so in 2000 and uh, was it 2009, maybe? Yes. When, when uh, did the Roots into the Future Thing. Sure, sure. So 23andMe um, is a DNA company. There's a few. There's Ancestry DNA, 23andMe, Family Tree DNA. There's also others, but those are the largest three. They had an initiative. I want to say this was 2010, 2011. I think it was about around then where they were trying to increase the number of African-Americans that were in their database, the number of people who have taken their test. You know, what? I actually um, read that and that's why I, I, use, I did National Geographic's. But yeah, I read that they didn't have enough African-American people in the database. Yes. Yes. And it's because, I mean, because of, of, you know, I mean, you you think about history, things like the Tuskegee experiments, you know, um, even early obstetrics and gynecology and how that was performed on slaves. If you don't know about any of that, read Medical Apartheid. It's an amazing book. Um, But uh, because we're just distrustful of the medical community in general, because of just different experiments, you know, just in general, it's just people of color. We were, especially with their product for 23andMe, because it, it connects health information along with genealogy, we were not flocking in droves to take the test. And so that also, you know, sort of challenged some of their scientific findings because it was framed from a European person's perspective. They didn't have information, uh, you know, or a large enough system that or large enough sampling of people of color, in particular African-Americans. So their way of trying to correct this was they gave away 10,000 free tests. And at this point, I had just connected with Takia, and this was on like photography. And I convinced there were eight of us. I convinced. I think almost all of us have done it at this point. I, I was nine thousand nine hundred and ninety nine. Like yeah, the test got gobbled up. I know, like a big share of my family took them. I blasted everybody. It was like, take this test, take this test, because now they can. People don't realize they can be used to help 
track relationships um, is one of the one of the ways that people actually get around adoption, private adoptions, is to take DNA tests along with retracing slavery. So let's say your ancestor got sold off and you don't know where your family came from, but you can get back to that ancestor. You can actually find those relatives in that location that the ancestor was sold off from because you share DNA. And so um, I somehow convinced our group of, of photography buddies, Sysdogs, to do DNA testing and, and Takia, Takia took the jump. And um, I did. <laughs> and my life has never been the same. Never, never, never. <laughs> so just in, in the event that someone is listening and they're not familiar with how the process goes, you get a, a box. There is typically a tube inside. You spit into the tube. This is for 23andMe. I haven't taken any of the other tests, so I'm not um, exactly familiar with those and the process for those. But Nika could probably tell you about all yes. of them at yes. this point. Um, and you spit into it, you send it off, you wait a few weeks, and then you get this magical email that says, oh, you know, your kid has been processed. You log in and you find, in my case, I think at the time, 700 cousins. And you don't know where to start. Yes. <laughs> These are 700 people who are genetically related to you. Some are as close as second cousins that you feel like you should know, right? And some are just very, very distant cousins that live in other countries around the world. It also gives you your um, uh, ethnic breakdown, which is, you know, if, you, if you're one of those people who says, I've got Indian in my family, this is a good way for you to find out if that is actually accurate. <laughs> yes. I, I did that and it did not. And I know for a fact, like I have found my great grandmother's name and her husband. Like I know that I have Cherokee in my family and uh, another type of Indian. It's escaping me right now, but it did not show up on my report. Well, which, which it, here's the thing. So let me, let me jump in here. So each of the, each of the companies does do, um, you know, Family Tree DNA does still does the swabbing of the cheek. You know, think Maury, right? When it's time to come in, and you know, are yeah. you the father? They so Family Tree DNA still does the swab, but Ancestry DNA and Twenty Three Me do this spit. You spit into a little spittoon. You have to go up to a certain line. Um, some people are like, "How do I produce that much spit?" Believe it or not, my grandmother was almost a hundred, and she did it in one one take. Um, and, <laughs> and yeah, my mom thought it was gross. She went to the bathroom. My grandmother was just like. Pfft. She likes totally spit into it. Um, and so um, now here's the thing. Depending on who you choose to test with, your results are run against their panel or their what's in their reference panel. And if they're not very strong on Native American um you know, samples or the number is particularly low when it's it's certain nations, it's not the one that your family is from, it's not gonna really show up in your results. Your results may may go to like not identified yet or an unstated or, you know, something sort of like that. So I'd I'd have to probably talk to you offline to, you know, to figure out exactly But you know I'm gonna just email you my report. Okay, like, yeah, I was so gonna you... say because and the other thing is yeah. my other side of my family is from the Cherokee Nation. So we have that connection there. So yeah. Yeah, yeah I can help bacon you with that. and yeah, Indians. Bacon and Indians. Yeah. I'm telling you. I love yeah. it. So, 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 bacon so, and Indians. 
I know yes. that's, that's all crazy. So Takia, <laughs> so Takia was saying that it does give you a degree of relatedness. This is absolutely right. This is this goes back to the comment I made about adoptees, right? You know, you don't know any family, and so when you take these tests, this is matching at a genetic level. It's removing the legal systems, you know, completely because this is just going directly to the people, right? This is not having to find a number, contact somebody. No, you're you're getting your relatives, and um, so most people when they see the commercial, they get the little pretty pie chart. Oh, I want my percentages. But they don't realize that there's also the component of matching you against the other people that are in the database. Um, I can't speak to 23andMe. I know they have over a million, but Ancestry is well over 5 million people in their system. So a lot of folks will, will go there first. And if you're an adoptee and you're listening to this, I suggest that you test with the, the, the largest three companies just so your, your footprint is wide. And yeah. So yeah. I agree. Take- I wholeheartedly agree. Yeah. So, so in your story, moving forward, in in your story. my story, um, you know, I waited a couple of years. Every year, more and more people would show up. They would populate in the system. Still couldn't put a finger on who belonged to who and what side was which. Um, I, at the time, I was thinking, well, I'll just get my mom to take the test and maybe that'll help me connect the dots on at least one playing field. And before I could have her take the test, a brother popped up in the system. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a brother I didn't know I had. Yeah. <laughs> and now I have a whole new family. That is a story for another podcast it because sure I'm, I'm saving it for the book. <laughs> yes. We need that. Yeah. But I always tell people, number one, 23andMe saved my life. And I'll explain that in just a second or potentially saved my life. But it also gave me something I would have never had, which is knowing where I came from. My story is very complex, but um, I, I have siblings now. I have a whole new family. I have cousins, uncles, aunts, all kinds of people in my family that I never knew existed because of 23andMe. So I I really want you to talk about the importance of knowing where you come from, especially for young people, because I feel like um, this may not be important to them now. Why should it be important? Absolutely. I think especially in the climate that we're in right now, and it's it's crazy to say that because that, that statement is almost cliche because everybody is saying it, but it, it's really it really is true. There's been especially our generation, I'm talking Gen Xers, millennials, there's sort of been this disconnect. Um, and I've actually been talking about it a lot in the last couple of days where I feel like as people of color, um, Gen Xers, millennials, our parents and grandparents, because they were the beneficiaries of the first sort of opportunities for people of color in the United States after Jim Crow, after segregation, we there are stories and things that they just didn't pass down to us about their lived experience and and not so much just their lived experience but the sum of the lived experiences of our ancestors and a lot of that has been because we want to assimilate we want to be fully american we want to take a, you know advantage of all the opportunities you know no one wants to sit and wallow in in negative stuff but you know i think a lot of times especially you know, we, we tend to not want to focus on the hard stuff because we think that it's it's going to, we just think it's, just, it's a challenge. It's not something that's easy to deal with. Yeah, everybody's trying to set their kids up for the best. Yeah, scenario. yeah. But, but in doing so, we also do a disservice to them if we're not transparent about the lived experience of our people. And that's just, that's just across the board. And in particular with, with, with African-American populations, you know, 
I can speak for myself, you know, my parents were those first beneficiaries of, you know, new opportunities, you know, being that first black person that got that job or, you know, being that, that, that first person to go to that school and things like that. And because they were, I feel like a lot of times they don't, they didn't pass down some of those stories and things that were associated with that experience that are needed, especially in this climate that we're dealing with right now. And a lot of these young folks are somewhat blindsided by what they're seeing because people thought it was over, that we were over that time period. And when you look at history and when you connect history and when you are able to look at history from a personal perspective through the lens of your ancestors and how the sum of parts with regard to decisions and that were made hundreds of years ago or a hundred years ago puts you in this seat right now listening to me talking. Yeah, that's powerful. Most people don't think about what got you into this chair or what got you on that subway as you're listening to your iPod, as you're standing, going to this job. And that there's a sum of parts and learning who fed all those parts in and who created this puzzle that became you. And for some folks, it's it's more of a challenge because they don't even know their parents' names. Or yeah. maybe they don't know their mother or their father's name. And so they're curious about who that person may be. Or maybe folks lost contact. Or maybe there was a, a, a fight or, or a disagreement that led to, to two factions of your family. You can't understand why. Or in some instances with Black families... Or, or even white families who are discovering that they are black and that someone so, you know, is passing. In my case, uh, it's, it's interesting you say that because in my case, what's what's kind of deterred me because I've not done. A, I had a moment where I tried to do some digging, but I have not done a lot because I found out that my uh, my father's father, so my grandfather, um, changed his name to pass. So like there are not many Cabral's mm-hmm. like Cabral is a made up name and so when I found that out I was like wait like that how do we even and he then I found out that you know he was adopted so I'm like oh my gosh you know so like just even the thought of trying to research that seemed very overwhelming to me and I mean I so I don't know I know who I'm related to you know kind of beyond you know beyond that and like kind of following my grandmother on my father's side and you know I probably could do that same thing on my mom's side but just like what you just said, people change names, trying to pass, people, you know, are adopted. And there are all these different scenarios that can put you in a position where you really don't know where you came from. And although I feel like just because I, you know, I work in the diversity space, I do a lot of work to make sure that I'm informed about history in general. Mm-hmm. It is something very special to know your own history. Yes. And and that's the thing. Choices got, got you to be here. Choices. You are a deliberate choice. And you had no, you had no involvement in the choices that got you here. You're just here. And it's a sum of choices from a multitude of people, whether it was, you know what, I live this existence in this, in this location and my skin is just light enough and my hair is just straight enough that, that I can go somewhere else and be somebody completely different. Or it's, I'm escaping this war and I don't want my child to live or my children or my grandchildren to live this existence. So I've got to flee. I've got to get somewhere else. Or it is, I made this horrible voyage. I lived, was one of the people that lived and eventually one day my my descendants are not going to be held captive by other people. 
it's all a sum of parts. You you are a choice. You are a bunch of choices that different people made and learning about who those people were and maybe what their motivations were for those choices then helps you live your life in a different way. And and that's across the board. I mean, you know, it's funny because um, one of the things that I often joke about is the fact that especially African-American people, when they take DNA tests, the thing that they want is they want to be 100% African. They want that percentage to come you out one hundred percent. That is so true. <laughs> that is they so true. Be you know they want they want all the rights and privileges of one hundred percent African, and I always have to let them down slowly and tell them it's rare that you're going to find somebody who is African American that is one hundred percent African, and it's just because of the nature of history and choices, right? Whether they were inflicted upon your ancestor or whether they were made by your ancestor, and on average, most African Americans have between anywhere from five to 60% European DNA. And they don't even know it until they take the test. And then what happens is when they start matching people in the databases and they see all these faces that don't look like theirs, there's a visceral reaction to that. And then there's also a reaction to it on the other side where you are somebody who's identified as European or white and you start seeing black or you know, uh, minority faces in your DNA results. And you then have to reconcile choices that your ancestors made to get you sitting in that chair, looking at that computer screen or browsing your phone. And so I, one of the things that I think um, that we really need to, you know, that, that, that could really change some of the dialogue and some of the stuff that we're seeing right now is if more people continue to DNA test, because, you know, as you see things happen, like Philando Castile or Alton Sterling or, or Tamir Rice, you know, if you're living in an existence where you don't, you're not directly def- affected by the deaths of these people, you'll think twice when you see their faces on the news or on social media, if you see faces that look just like theirs and they're your family and you know they are because you match them genetically. Mm-hmm. So in addition to connecting to people from a genetic standpoint in terms of just being able to relate, because that's, obviously there's a, a lot of value in just the connectivity of being able to say, you know, I am also a person of color, even when you think you're not, or recognizing that you are not entirely you know, just a, you know, African-American or African person. Um, What are some of the other benefits? Like, what are some of the other reasons? I mean, to your point, I think people have a lot of reservation. I know for me, it's the idea of someone just out in the world with my DNA, with some of the things that have been done in this, this world (laughs) makes me a little bit nervous. Mm -hmm. But I mean, what are some reasons to kind of say, okay, I'm willing to go ahead and do this, you know, despite my own reservations? Well, I think um, that's the thing. You have to be really clear on what the policies are with the company that you've you've chosen to test with. You know what what are their what are what are they saying as a you know what's their what's their agreement with you as their customer? You know, do you have the option to opt out of you know any type of future research that's done? You know, do do they keep your DNA sample? You know, or do you get to choose whether or not they don't? You know, they don't keep it, or you know, do you? That's, here's the other thing too: if someone has privacy concerns, you can you can buy a test from any of the companies and just not use your legal name. Or don't attach any of your, you know, family information to, you know, uh, your tree. You know, you don't don't have a tree up. Just, you know, you can pick any name. You can pick Zoom, 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 and that's your name. And nobody's going to know who you are. If somebody tries to contact you, you just don't respond. That's the choice that you make. Um, but, you know, there are a lot of safeguards in place. You know, um, people have concerns like, oh, well, can the government or can law enforcement get, you know, my genetic information? And they would have to take the the, the route that they would have to take 
in, in any case, right? If let's say, you know, someone in your family decided to rob somebody or they couldn't find them, they're on the FBI's most wanted list. I'm making up this whole story. Um, and they decided to, you know, they wanted to test family members to see if they could find out who the person was. They would have to get a warrant from a judge to do that. It's the exact same scenario when you're talking with, you know, with DNA and law enforcement being able to get, um, you know, being able to get access to it. A warrant would have to be issued by a judge, which means a third party would have to agree that there was a case, you know, for needing this information, that it wasn't violating this person's privacy. So um, that, that, you know, I hope that would ease people's fears about what's going on with this. The other thing I also like to bring up to folks is, look, we go to the clinic and the hospital all the time. I don't see women going back to the to the to the place where they had their child and asking for the afterbirth unless they want to eat it. Perhaps but people do that. But I don't see people going back and saying, give me my blood back after you got a blood test done. Right. You're right. And you and, and a hospital and your HMO has way more information on you than Ancestry does. <laughs> or any other company. Your whole health history. Yeah. It, <laughs> you at least get a choice with Ancestry what you want to share. Exactly. So that's a good point. They've got your genetic information and your address and your social security number. People don't often think about that or the fact that if you went to the, if you went to the, the grocery store, you just left your debit card number and your hair there. Mm-hmm. 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 So. I tell people all the time, I mean, cause I did 23 and me and it does come with the health information. There were some things there that were surprises and there were some things that were not surprises, but I, I think I, I prefaced it earlier. I, I said that 23 and me potentially saved my life because had I not found uh, my family or had the health information, um, I would have never known to get a colonoscopy because I'm quote unquote too young. And I had to petition my insurance company taking that information and taking a family history form that was given to me by my doctor, sending it to my insurance company for a whole year until they finally gave in and allowed me to get the colonoscopy and covered it. And when I got the colonoscopy and I'm still fairly young, um, I had four polyps two were precancerous because colon cancer runs rampant through my father's side of the family wow. so had I never done any of this I don't know what my life would have looked like five to ten years from now wow that makes me almost want to cry <laughs> I know <laughs> okay finish the statement brown girls do brown girls do their work So thank you to Nika Smith for participating on episode three and giving us a little bit of background about how to find out more about our history. I know I definitely will be looking into that. Yeah. And thank you to uh, Sounds Like Zoe and Garsha for our uh, editing and our brand new wonderful intro. You know, somebody thought that was me singing. I said, I can't (laughs) sing like that. I, I don't sing that well. That's like real life. Nika, as a matter of fact, after after uh, she heard the intro, she was like, okay, be honest. That's you singing, right? I was like, no. If I could sing like that, I'd never shut up. I'd be singing right now, y'all. <laughs> and we want to thank Lemon Drop Media for believing in us and helping give us some direction with our crazy, hectic schedules and keeping us on track. See you guys next episode. Bye. Bye.